What happens when you combine the most innovative, eccentric and charismatic leaders, disruptors and founders from tech with the pedigree and history of one of the most established institutions within the City of London? Season four of the Searching for Mana podcast will be produced in partnership with the London Stock Exchange and will represent one of the most exciting collaborations in the tech space. I'm Lloyd Wahed, the host of Searching for Mana. We're going to be interviewing some of the leaders, influencers and disruptors in the tech space, where I'm going to be trying to dig in and find out what's their mana, their superpower, their magic. I'm more than a trifle excited about the next stage of this journey, and I hope you'll be joining me. Welcome on to Searching for Mana, Ilya. Thank you, Lloyd. Great to be here. Pleasure to have you on. How are you doing? It's good, yeah. Just got back to Lisbon, so enjoy the sun. Is is Lisbon home for you at the moment? I would say it's a center of mass through my journey. <laughs> you are all over the world at every event, running a huge organization, but Lisbon is a place where you center yourself, and it's sunny right now. We're in the end of June 2022, and it's sunny in Lisbon, and it's winter in the markets. <laughs> <laughs> so... I mean, on that point, there's a lot going on in the macro right now. It's affected everything. We're into a bear market. People are predicting a massive recession. And you have what I assume is an opportunity, therefore, to look back in 10 years and think that this was the moment where potentially you took it all. You took your opportunity. <laughs> so many of the big companies come out of that 2000.com crash, don't they? Like Amazon. So Ilya. Pleasure to have you on the show, founder of Near Protocol, um, a background before that in many things, but um, let's say one of the headlines that the audience will relate to is managing AI at Google, broadly speaking, and we'll cover a bit of that in your bio section. Set up Near Protocol, end of 2017 into 2018, and really the traction since then has been phenomenal. So congratulations. We'll go through that also in the um, founding story and bio section. But right now, what would be um, really kind of you is if you could just talk through to the audience the scale that Near is at at the moment, and really what your role within that on a day-to-day basis is, please. Sure, yeah. I mean, the scale has been honestly growing every month and we don't see any signs of slowing down with whatever is going on in kind of broader market. There's 50 million accounts on chain. There's over 650 projects that are building an ecosystem. You know, we're one of the largest developer communities in Web3 and, you know, over half a million community members across the world. And at the same time, not the number of product labs, eco funds, regional hubs, like are been building out and, and really representing the ecosystem around the world. And I'm actually really excited about that. And so my role kind of, I would say transition from at the start was like, hey, let's figure out this protocol, let's write some code to in the past, I would say, especially six months being finding out projects and leaders and working with them to form some of these foundational components of the Web3. And at the same time, trying to analyze and draw the vision of where kind of this ecosystem can be going. Right? And again, this is permissionless ecosystem. People will do whatever they want, but drawing the paths that people can take. And then for people, a lot of new folks are coming in and do Web3 from Web2 
So guiding them through this path and showing where they can build and what things can build. And then really some things I believe are extremely important, right? So lowering barrier to entry for developers. So I've been pushing to get JavaScript support for near, making sure we continue paying attention to user experience end to end. So all of those things kind of, I'm like, I'm almost like a chief quality assurance officer. I go around and test everything. I have chats with a lot of projects where I complain about their product. And so pretty much just making sure this ecosystem kind of still prioritizes the experience, it does lower the barriers to entry, and then trying to draw out where this is going. Fantastic. Thanks for that. And lots of things I'd like to cut into, but we've had Mariki, who's the CEO of the Near Foundation. Uh, onto the show and it's been released recently. And we also had Oleg, who's the founder and CEO with Sweatcoin, which is one of the um, user cases that lives on the near protocol and has got fantastic traction. So I thought given the audience has some type of knowledge around near and from a careers perspective, this is really interesting for us to try and break down the differences. So you've just kindly described what it is you're doing, chief quality assurance dude around the <laughs> Near Foundation. And Marie can kindly talk through the things that she's focused on. And this is really, this is really new, isn't it? It'd be very rare for um, a founder who founded a company with this much traction, let's say four or five years into it, for there to be different type of really key people running parts of that overall organization. So just pretend that, and it's pretty true, I'm a layman here. Why is that happening? Why is there the separation of roles? And really broadly speaking, what are the responsibilities that are differentiated there? Well, so to be clear, because the ecosystem is not a company, right? And, and I mean, if, if we, we can also go into philosophy here a little bit more. So when I worked at Google, it always felt like the structure, like there was a lot of really powerful things that Google done from my perspective, really well, which are all of the tooling, all of the source code and all of the services are open to, for anyone to use and contribute, right? And so if, if I'm sitting in search and I want to do something with, for example, Google Docs, it's possible, right? It's an open service. I can hook into APIs. I mean, obviously the security is private, private user data and a lot of other stuff, but generally speaking, you can plug in different services into each other and build out some new products. Yeah. Now, now there's a lot of things that Google, from my perspective, done wrong. <laughs> but I think the biggest issue is that, uh, two biggest issues. One is that it's a, a completely permission system, right? So to come in into Google, you need to go through it, a very permission setup. So you cannot have this permissionless innovation where random people are doing stuff and kind of you come in, you, the ideas come from everywhere. And because obviously there's a bias who comes into the system. And the second thing is there's no economical incentive internally, right? So there's an external, very powerful economic incentive of its stock. But internally, right, if I'm building TensorFlow or I'm building this amazing knowledge graph, there's no way to know how valuable that is for a whole system, right? There's no way to kind of accrue specific value to this. And so in result, even though there's a competitive product and there's the decision-making between which one is more valuable than the other one is made based on not like economical value in market, but based on whatever kind of rent, rent, randomness or people or whatever, like it's not very well designed. And so 
what I would say Web3 addresses, it addresses a lot of things, right? And principally it addresses this idea of, from my perspective, of low switching costs, right? So it's not like any kind of permissionlessness comes from this, right? If you have low switching costs, it means it should be permissionless. You cannot be permissioned. Then you don't, don't have low switching costs. Decentralization also comes from this, right? To achieve low switching costs, you need to be decentralized. You need to have more than one place where you can switch to. And so this comes to nodes, this comes to infrastructure, wallets, applications. On every level, you need to have a low switching cost. And it comes to teams as well. So if we're talking about low switching costs, it means that there needs to be multiple teams either supporting or maintaining something or offering alternative solutions. And so this is what near ecosystem is built around. It's not a single company. It's an ecosystem that kind of has an umbrella around, but there's a lot of different pieces that sometimes overlap, sometimes offer competitive solutions within a single culture, structure, values, set of and mission set of things. And because of this, each one of these pieces has its own leader, right? So it's not just near foundation, it's just one of the entities. There's regional hubs, which are representing Ukraine, Balkans, China, which each one has a CEO. Right? There is a number of ecosystem infrastructure projects like Goda, Aurora, Calimero, Makina, Flux, Octopus. Each one has a CEO, each one of them potentially contributing to the protocol. And so for people who are familiar with open source, this is very similar to things like Linux. Right, So Linux is an open source project. There's a lot of open source code there. And then there's Linux Foundation, which actually does not do much development itself. It's mostly does marketing, fund allocation, governance, being the representative of the ecosystem. Then there's companies like Red Hat, Canonical, Intel, Google, and others who are contributing to the Linux and using it in turn to build their own products and services. And so in many ways, this is a prototype. I would say open source is prototype of Web3, right? There's everything but no economics on the base level. And that's why Linux Foundation is very much like needs to, if it doesn't have much resources and needs to ask for, for donations all the time. And I think like Web3 kind of innovated on this like resource allocation through token economics, through these things, allowing us to have uh, very much this attribution to economics, right? Like now, if, if we build Google in open source way, me working on TensorFlow, we would have a TensorFlow token. And so if people want to use TensorFlow, they need to somehow leverage this token to, to access TensorFlow. And now, guess what? Now we know who the main customers are. We know how to drive development forward right? versus just arbitrarily deciding what features to do. And so that, from my perspective, creates still a, a way to have permissionless model, but now have priorities and have economic capture for kind of different pieces in the ecosystem. Yeah, so it's so exciting, isn't it? I saw, I think, CZ of Binance um, in one of his Twitter spamming rages, <laughs> which has escalated recently, saying, talking the whole time about blockchain, we'll look back on as akin to just exactly like you said, like the consumers talking about Linux. I mean, it's going to be like that. What we really want to be looking at is what's the actual utility? What's the user cases? Where are they coming through? And I think what's exciting, albeit right now we're in some type of bear market, for me, looking at the talent that's come in, the scale of the technology, and you can never be assured in anything, but it's relatively assured that over the next 10 years, 
So these are going to be the biggest platforms in the world. And this is where the most interesting future of work and so on and so forth is going to exist. And so you find yourself in this really exciting position, Elia, where there's so many exciting outcomes that can happen if this is got right. And some of the things I'm trying to think through, so Searching for Mana is a show where I'm trying to find the greatest entrepreneurs of our time in real time, not go and do their biography once they've finished. And it's all rose-tinted glasses and everything was perfect apart from half a chapter. I think if we catch you now, like you, you could be the next Google, right? Obviously, there's difference to it, as you've just explained. It's an open source, but it's very exciting to me and hopefully the audience to be in an era where I do think every 10 years, every 20 years, you do get these monumental shifts in technology. And the blockchain is a monumental shift in technology. And what we have right now is you know, 20, 30, 40 different protocols out there who have got various types of traction and communities and have different nuance to them. And not all of them are going to be around. And what we can philosophize through is, well, what will it look like in 10 years? And that's quite fun. So I'd like you to do that for us. So just to give some context to that trail of thought, does this end up in a scenario where there are several major technical platforms, and let's just call them that, open source of course, where the ecosystems exist very separately, but they're known for various things. An example might be ease, an example might be particularly DeFi or finance, so on and so forth. Is the scenario that we end up with one, let's just say, or is there a scenario actually where we end up with thousands and there's collaboration? They're the extreme scenarios that then I'll uh, hand over to you to think through. Well, isn't that a trillion dollar question? <laughs> yeah, so from my perspective, obviously biased, building one, I would say there will be a power law as with everything. It will not be that there will be only one left, right? We're not in Highlander. But at the same time, we will not have dozens of generic smart contract platforms from my perspective. So my view on this will be probably like two or three major ones because Again, we do need some switching, low switching costs from perspective of there needs to be options. And then there will be a bunch of more application specific chains, right? And so this is why like Cosmos and Octopus and Polkadot Power Chain ideas are out there, right? Because it's clear that some developers do want to have a dedicated capacity. Now, at the same time, if you look from a user perspective, this is like we're talking about, this is how talking, will there be one major data center or there'll be provider or there'll be multiple data center providers and some other people will be running their own hardware. This is not what users should care about. What, and obviously data centers are different from blockchain, but a lot of, I would say, experience will get improved through various means making it such that as a user, you don't fully even know which chain is some application lives on. And I'll give you an example of something that's already almost here, right? So, I mean, some things already work, but some things not yet. But we have one of the kind of decentralized exchanges called Orderly, so it's a protocol. The benefit is together orderly and a rainbow bridge, our cross-chain communication protocol near ecosystem, together what they allow you to build is an experience where you go to one of the orderly exchanges, Kronos, uh, and you deposit your funds from other chains, for example, from Ethereum. They arrive to the exchange and you trade them and you withdraw them directly to Ethereum. 
It doesn't actually know that when you're doing this, you're actually doing everything on near, right? It's not actually, but you don't need the near account. You don't need to send near transactions. You don't need a near wallet. You completely operate it from your Ethereum uh, wallet with Ethereum network and everything looks like you're on Ethereum chain. And the reality is, and this is without changing anything. This is not even changing MetaMask, right? And imagine if we get thousands more major wallets to start being more cross-chain and unifying this experience. So I think like the reality of this, we are getting closer and closer where you will be having NFTs on all different chains, but then your NFT wallet will show you them. You own them. You will have applications that you're interacting with. Now... For that to work well, the chains need to work well and the kind of security expectations need to be at least somewhat similar. A lot of things need to work well and we're not there. A lot of things are still very clunky. There's failures in the networks. There's all those things that need to be fixed before this really truly will work. But I think but, also, I think also, Ilya, incentives at the moment. So to use the example you just skimmed through, one of the ventures that I have some involvement with as somebody who collects NFTs, the experience I had is, and I know this is very dear to your thinking of which is, I don't really care what protocol this is on. What I care about is, in my instance, that I like the NFTs and I've bought those NFTs, some from Solana, some from Ethereum, some from Tezos, you know, et cetera. Now, what I want to be able to do is go and look at these in a virtual gallery um, or share these because you, know, you might be proud of them or you want other people to be able to see the collection you've created. Let's just say as this example, and it's impossible to do that right now, because if you've gone and bought your NFTs on Tezos, then it's not cross-chain with the ones that are with Solana. And that's really frustrating from the user perspective. I just don't care about that, right? And so then as somebody who's trying to attract a venture capital for this project, which it got... When you went to the foundations to see if they were also interested in supporting this project, they weren't. And that's because they it wouldn't just have one wallet. And what it feels like the incentive for a lot of the um, foundations and protocols right now is to attract as many wallets as possible. And so how can you think through resolving that, not technically, but just from an incentive perspective? Yeah, I mean, this is a really interesting point that like the technicality of this is here, but wallets, and to be clear, there are a few wallets that are trying to resolve this, right? Uh, DeFi, I think, is one of them that trying to actually be a cross-chain wallet. But yeah, most of the wallets are still very like, hey, we're on this chain and we enshrine the experience here and we don't really look at other stuff. I think if you ask me right now, right here, what should happen, there needs to be probably a coalition forum, right? That will have incentives that are cross-chain. And the reality of this is there's few coalitions, the Cosmos being one of them that has, but then it has very much incentives to build Cosmos <laughs> on the experience. I think like right now, we have this Cambria explosion of more self-focused ecosystems. Although, again, we do have bridges, we do have some of the cross-chain tech that popping up. And I think as this ecosystems grow big enough, I think because it started with like Ethereum being, you know, 95% of everything. And so it didn't actually, like if you're a just venture capitalist allocating capital, it was not, it did not make sense to allocate capital into cross-chain kind of technology because 95% of the market here 
it's not worth it. I think now as other ecosystems are growing fast and starting to become sizable, it actually will be a very much economical decision to build one of this cross-chain experiences. And they will naturally dominate user experience because that will actually have, give users what they want, right? Ability to access everything they own across different ecosystems. And yep. so now the problem is it's actually harder, technically more complex to build. And so it takes more time, takes more capital. And so that's, I think, the balance that will, like, we will see market kind of appreciating as soon as these ecosystems are all big enough to justify that. So I think a lot of it will be almost like market-based. As soon as they're big enough and there isn't enough users who care about, oh, I want to see things between near Solana and, and Ethereum, there will be capital allocated into that. Yeah. Or existing projects will expand the scope to that. Yeah. And I think when the perception of what traction is evolves, then the incentive can not be just, do we have the wallet? Which is like the first experience of in web two, has the person provided their, their information to us so that we can run data on behavior and so on and so forth. And I came and Marla was hosting a panel with near Paris blockchain week. And then I came and listened to a speech that you gave Elia. And on searching for Mana, we're, we're really picky with who we bring on because we're trying to build a reputation of this genuinely could be some of the, the hugest projects of our time. And I really resonated and loved some of the principles that you were talking through with Nier, of which are all thought through about, look, this needs to be simple for the user. There needs to be utility there. But also, therefore, we need to attract the dev community. We need it to be reasonable for the dev community to be able to build on here. And a lot of the other protocols that I know, it's very sophisticated, which I understand because it's very sophisticated who built them, but therefore it's quite distant from Web2 being able to come into Web3, which leads me on to now, just for this final first part of the show, talking about um, Sweatcoin, which I think is a very relatable user case Hopefully for the public, just for anybody who hasn't listened, the Sweatcoin is a token that's coming out where to move you earn. So if you think about a typical day where you might have made 7,000 or 10,000 steps, then this is something that's trying to incentivize and reward people to do more of that so that our health is improved. And I think their catchy phrase is, your health is your wealth or, or something like this. So um, if you could talk us through that project and uh, why it's exciting for you, please. Yeah, for sure. I think the kind of biggest problem that this Web3 has faced has been, it's almost like you need to pay to play, right? That's been the, I would say, and it's fine when people are in that, doing investment because that's how investments work. But as we want to shift away from just, this is investment and speculation to actually, hey, there's applications and use cases that you can go beyond. I'm working on stuff like project management or stuff like this. And so it's been really hard to break down this, like, oh, but I need to buy some tokens first uh, problem. And so because of this, the user growth, the true user growth of the kind of blockchain ecosystem has been very much stressed and limited. And so on near side, we've really been trying to focus on that. On, well, if we think from a user perspective, how do we make the flow so simple and so straightforward that... Um, people can onboard without needing to figure out the private keys, without figuring out hashes and blocks and transactions. And so that was kind of part of the story. 
But the other part of the story is getting a little bit of capital to starting to explore all those use cases. Because indeed, blockchain, as I said, because of this market dynamics, is doing a lot of financialization of the use cases. So you kind of need to give a little bit of uh, capital to start playing with this. And that's what Sweatcoin is. Sweatcoin is really a onboarding, a mass onboarding flow, right? That allows everyone in the world who is able to move to onboarding the ecosystem, get a little bit of tokens to play around and potentially earn more and then start exploring this new world. And that's why it's exciting. They already have over hundred million installs. They brought 10 million, over 10 million accounts already on chain and onboarding more and more people. And so through that, like in a way, this is what Google and the browsers did for Web2 is they really opened up the internet. And now everybody got the traffic. Like similarly, we see Sweatcoin and a few other applications like that who are opening up the Web3 to mass market and actually bringing them to all these applications that everybody else is building. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, super interesting. And I got questions about <laughs> Google and <laughs> And AI and then the evolution of once that mass consumer comes into the sweat coin, which is it's quite a simple user case at the moment, what we're predicting will be useful utility for them. So we'll come back to that in the final part of the show. So now I want to go back into your bio, Ilian. You know, obviously had some conversations with you previously and done some research, and there are a few things that I'm interested to dig into. But before we do that, as a first for the Searching for Mana show, we're going to flip what normally is the final round of finding your mana into this. So then we can really understand it as you talk us through your bio. So I've just got some stock questions and you can answer <laughs> very short form to these. Okay. I'm just going to list, list them out to start with. And I know you know this, but just for anyone in the audience who doesn't, let's think of mana as magic. In gaming, you have power and then you have mana. And mana can really be your sword skills. You can run really fast. For everybody, it's different. But there are some common ones we get from entrepreneurs and founders. Uh, Ilya, what would you say your mana is? I would say low switching cost. <laughs> so I'm, I'm able to switch context very cheaply, I would say, and easily. And so that allows to have a number of projects and efforts in parallel happening that I'm involved with pretty deeply. Thank you. What book has been something you've come back to or gifted or is something you'd like to recommend to the audience? The book is Extreme Ownership. And if you have not read it yet, I recommend it in audiobook style. <laughs> And just in brief, why are you recommending that? So it's two Navy SEALs who outline the principles of taking principles of leadership, taking ownership of decisions and both success and failure. And they kind of contrasted between situations when they were deployed in active military and to a business situations kind of in a very relatable for any entrepreneur or exec or manager uh, life. And so I think it's very interesting contrast on one side and, and kind of entertaining, especially in audiobooks uh, version, because they actually read it themselves. And oh, they have uh, uh, obviously very, uh, very well expression there. 
And on the other side, you know, it is a kind of useful framework to, to go back to when you're dealing with failures or hard situations, how to react to that and how to process that. And I think uh, that's important for everyone. I have a, a summary that was made on that book in a Twitter thread. I'll share it in the show notes. And I shared it with my team because it was just such brilliant practical advice. And I find a lot of my time when I'm used as a soundboard in headhunting or career development, I mean, really, all I'm doing is going back to trying to educate people on a mentality. And I think that those guys obviously have a very hard one, what's very practical for certain scenarios that you're in. Just because it's very interesting to me, what would be one that you took from that book off the top of your head that might be interesting to the audience? I already like ingrained it so much that I don't actually remember the specific pieces. For me, it's obviously the persistence, the communication, it just goes back to the military stories. It's just a, such a good frame of reference because the clearness of communication, lack of it leads to friendly fire, right? Like where there were literally like two different units of U.S. Army was firing at each other because they did not have a proper command and control there. At the same time, yeah, persistence of what is it, 200 burpees every morning and <laughs> things like that. I mean, this is the same thing as you take a long journey one step at a time and uh, th there's no problem big enough. That, like it was just not, not like the, there's just, it, you just need a plan and you split it into manageable, doable pieces. And then you just attack it right from that hands on. Yeah. So, so yeah, exactly. You have, you have strategy and then you have tactical ways to get through it. How do you get up the mountain? You look at the next place that you need to get to and focus on getting to it very transferable into elite sport as well and take from it things such as my partner asked me why have you got OCD and make your bed first thing Lloyd and uh, I'm like because if I start like that then it's a process that carries on why why do you have a cold shower because <laughs> I've been trying to make my mind strong I'm trying to focus into the day and I'm really definitely unperfect and that doesn't happen the whole time but just sometimes when you're motivated these little things can really set you up to have success in your day or get through the challenging times. What keeps you up at night at the moment, Ilya? What keeps me up at night? Generally, I'm coming back to how to grow faster. This is, I think we're in this interesting state where as an ecosystem, not just near, where we have the first glimpse of working use cases. We have a ton of Web2 talent that came in that's really excited about this. And at the same time, we have so many barriers that are in front of us. Everything from what happened with the global market and some like Terra and some of the other players in the market collapsed, and as well as what leads to regulators really being more active. And what we know from the history, right, from stories of PayPal and others is like what overcomes this kind of strain is the growth, is actually bringing value to users. And so for me, it's like, well, what are the other use cases? What are the other pieces of the ecosystem we need to bring to unlock this value? And so that's kind of what I'm always coming back, like how to grow faster, how to bring more use cases and then bring more users. Just because of your background, I'm going to take the liberty to do a rift on that question as well. I love listening to Elon Musk talking about whether we're in a simulation and there's been years of debate over a singularity and is AI good or evil or somewhere in the middle, given your background. And by the way, Mariki, I think, said that what keeps her up at night is, is tech going to go wrong? So just from a personal perspective, away from near, which I understand is on your mind, like growing that, 
opportunity. Talk us through where you are on artificial intelligence and whether it's a friend or a foe. So I obviously I'm a very optimistic person as well. I have spent considerable, like almost 10 years working on AI. And so for me, I think of technology in general as our greatest intelligent enhancement. And not just intelligence, but also with exoskeleton strengths and with cars, speed and with everything. And so for me, we already have something that is unimaginable 50 years ago. We have a smartphone with Google with us all the time. And so we are more intelligent from the knowledge perspective than anyone 50 years could have imagined. You could not imagine as someone who can speak 80 languages and respond to every question with seconds. There's only a few people who could do that. And now almost everyone who has a smartphone is able to do that. So this is the intelligent enhancement that we already have that's already here. And Google, to be clear, Google search is probably more, I mean, it, not probably, it is hundreds to thousands of times more, more knowledgeable than any single human can ever be. And at the same time, it's still like dumb as a baby from perspective of making logical inferences and things like that. And so this is what I've been working on, like at Google, how can we answer better questions? questions better how do we get logic how do we get more knowledge reasoning and stuff like this and so from my perspective when we achieve that and there's been a lot of good progress on that we're going to have an assistance that supersedes obviously the the capabilities that we're imagining now but it's still driven by our demand it's still driven by our acts now obviously this is kind of a hypothesis that at some point it, it will get its own self-consciousness which nobody understands what that is so like there's risks around that and so kind of to counteract that and i know this was supposed to be short answers uh, <laughs> uh the the Question is like right now, a lot of this intelligence, right, is contained within, well, centralized companies, right? And so from my perspective, the answer here is really, we need to make it open. We need to make it community governed and controlled. And so we can actually be like, all of us can be both contributing to it, using it, and also making sure that it is benefiting the community and, and the society overall versus being for-profit generating machine. Amazing. We're going to come back onto that in the final section because it bring us nicely onto, I think, possibly DAOs, the weighting of decisions and AI. Okay, good. Not doomsday thinking from you there then. And it just two more very quick bullet point questions. What would you put on the cover of whatever your favorite magazine is, let's say Forbes, for instance, what would you put on it? What would I put on Forbes magazine? I mean, I would say things like Sweatcoin, things like Brave, things that are moving this industry forward and and uh, and same time are and end user like not regular people relatable. So kind of starting to educate from what guest would you love to listen to or watch come onto the searching for Mana show? Well, let's do it on Musk. Agreed. <laughs> Absolutely agreed. The show will get there soon, I'm sure. We've got people like you on now and 
founders of Shazam and so on and so forth. So it's only a matter of time. Okay, fantastic. So to go back to your bio, Elia, so we can really understand how maybe that mana evolved or some of your experiences and stories and challenges. The first time that you can really and go far back as possible, ideally before education, where you could set the scene so that we can visualize who you were when you were growing up and some of the experiences that maybe culminated in you being, you know, what I would call a successful outlier. Sure. I think kind of the origin story is I'm from Ukraine, from the city Kharkiv, which has been sadly very much bombed at this point. And the origin there has, I started trying to realize you can build things and you can create worlds on a computer pretty early on, age of 10. But that, that always excited me. Like this. How did you get to that? or exposed you to that? I mean, we got computer a year before, but when I went to fifth grade in the middle school, there was a computer class. And so we had a pro- intro programming thing where we were programming these tortoises going around. And for me, it was like, hey, we can actually like tell computer what to do and it will do it and like, predictably. And then beyond that, you can actually build some games but then the games actually become almost worlds and i'm actually like i'm very big fan of science fiction fantasy which is my man is so uh, so close to me Uh, and i actually was writing even back then which it was very basic but was writing my own science fiction including one of this like simulation 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 story amazing could you remember any of that story you were writing uh, well, I mean, the basic premise was that each world, like each world we're living in is just a simulation. And so there's always a simulation above us that simulates us, but then there's always a simulation above that one as well. And so, and so there's wor- people who are travelers through simulations who can pretty much plug in and go into the next one deeper. And so, but you're always capped by the limit of which one you're actually born at. So there's always a level you cannot go above out. And so, yeah, the story was like trying to take over a body of the level above to, to kind of escape and things like that. And also, what can you do if you have like superpowers and one below? Oh, and I love it. So, yeah. do, you, do you still have any of that writing? Uh, that one, I do not. I have some other writing. We actually end up in my student years, we actually end up building a publishing website. It's mostly Russian, Ukrainian uh, language, but yeah, so I have some of my stuff written there. I self-published there. Fantastic. Wow. Well, what an interesting insight. You have the founder of Rocket Internet, Oliver Samware, and he gives a talk I watched on YouTube anyway, where he's talking about how he finds the best founders. And they're almost always, in his instance, they're from, and this is not to be rude, but they're from a farm. And he thinks that's because what's formed in a scenario which is slightly, let's say, out of the norm or a city is really big dreams that people hold on to. And people can almost go into a creative world of their own that then when they, if they have the right type of mana and the big, big enough level of obviously compassion, they can hold on to that for longer than anyone else. And a large part of being a successful entrepreneur is underneath the peak of that iceberg, which can look very glamorous and alluring. It's just years and years and often decades of resilience and sticking true to that type of dream that you had. 
And so that shows us perhaps the forming of that for you, loving sci-fi and creating worlds and thinking through levels of inception. And then technology is put on a desk in front of you and you can create games. So then you say at university, you created publishing um, website or platform, but carry on with that story if you could, Elia. So what happens next? When do you get really competent at development? <laughs> yeah, well, through, I would say high school. So I started competing in programming competitions. And so programming competitions for people who don't know, it's pretty much some type of like, you're given a set of problems and you need to solve them within a fixed period of time. And you need to actually build the code and it needs to be correct, absolutely correct. That's the most important thing. So it needs to cover all of the edge cases and be matching what was asked. And so I started doing that kind of at the end of middle school and then gotten okay, I would say in high school, winning like all Ukrainian at some point. How are you spending um, your time at that point to be that competent? So I let's just assume that I personally believe in the debate of nurture and nature that both are colliding. There needs to be the right level of engine and capability but then a lot of what can make you successful and it is correlated to how niche the competition is. So if it's hundred <laughs> meters, you need yeah. both at maximum. If it's windsurfing, you might not need as much initial capability if then the time goes into it. This is my thinking anyway. So clearly let's say the engine's very good for you at that point. How are you spending your time to become number one in Ukraine at that point? Well, I was not number one, but uh, yeah, I took a, a elite at the top, like top <laughs> six or something at some point for that age to be clear. So there was a group of us who was doing competitive programming in our high school. And we spent, I would say, 60 to 80% of our day in the computer class. Wow. So we had, because we were competing at the Ukrainian level, our school has allowed us to prioritize that kind of against almost everything else. So we would Amazing. still go to math classes, to physics classes, and some other things. But we would skip a lot of other stuff. What were you most happy to skip? <laughs> <laughs> well, I have skipped a lot of literature and language classes. Which... <laughs> that's, a, that's a shame as an aspiring writer. <laughs> that is exactly the problem that I've found. So we've spent a lot of time. I mean, it's definitely a combination of putting a lot of hours and having a group of friends and people to to train with to com and compete with yep. because i think if you're just trying to do it alone alone and i know some folks who manage to do it really well it's just really hard right like you don't have this kind of camaraderie that supports you and yeah i think like for any kind of training and competitive stuff you definitely need to be surrounded by people who are also competing and then you have very much on one side support and the other like a friendly competition that you can participate in and so, yeah, that was a lot of high school was that. And then in parallel, I was building some of my own projects, one of, or like few of which were pretty much games. And I ended up building like League of Legends, Dota type of thing. I was building that, but for spaceships. So you are able to have multiple people having a set of spaceships that they fight with each other in the very much like capture the flag type of, type of world. And so a lot of it is networking, the graphics and engine to do the algorithms, which was kind of exciting because you build a world, you actually see people playing it as well. So we actually have people playing it in the class. And so that always excited me, something that you build that other people can start interacting with, playing with and really enjoying it all. When you get to that point, Ilya, of 
clearly having found what is a passion and it can allow you to create these creative worlds. How much are you really at that point thinking what the benefit of formal education is? That's a good question, which I have asked myself. But so what happened was pretty much out of high school. Yeah, it was an interesting question of, well, given I'm already doing stuff, it doesn't make sense. But the, the answer, I think, is it does to and depends obviously what you take but I was pretty clear what I wanted to study more and so I was really a kind of looking for that in the universities right and so I was looking for a class which was specifically and I got interested and excited about artificial intelligence as well early on also was actually very much I would say touched by the movie called artificial intelligence and then, yeah, through that, wanted to learn about neural networks and kind of expert systems. And so I was looking for some kind of specific department, not in school, department where I can learn these things and put it to practice. I think like if we're talking about formal education, if you're just going to blast school because you want to go to a blast school, but you already know what you want to do, that's not useful. But if you know what you want, you all the professors, all of the all of the PhDs, associates, everyone has a website. They have what they start, what they're doing. They have their work, research work. Everything is out there. You can actually find. You can connect with them. You can figure out who and where you want to study and what. And so with that, you can actually be very targeted and get the best out of out of the system, right? While still getting a diploma that is you know, still useful in this world. I, I want to just so, to to not to not be completely chronological here because otherwise we'll miss interesting things we can relate to like the world you're on top of right now i get this trend from just a whole load of people who've then let's at least say found their passion in work relatively early on being fortunate enough to appreciate what type of skill set will lend to them being able to pursue what they want to do famous examples of many people but warren buffett seeking out the exact investor philosophy at education in preference to choosing the prestigious university is one of the things that he puts down to contributing to him really passionately enjoying and being successful at what he did. So that trend's super important. But let's think about answering that question now for this generation moving forward. Does something like a university or the future education that could exist in a Web3 ecosystem become a more useful utility for somebody now than going to what still would carry prestige to go to a traditional Web2 or Web1 or financial organization? Does Web3 really care about it? I don't really think so moving forward. You just care, is this person brilliant at doing what they're going to do? How are you thinking that through? What are you seeing? I think there are a few sides of this, right? So what a, like a university gives you is a combination of things. Obviously, there's some lectures and, and, and things like that. And yeah, right now, I think we're moving. And like through my kind of history, what happened actually is for me to kind of maybe finish that first to, before entering, I actually started working on my first year of university. So I had a, a 20 hour per week job working in machine learning company in US from the first year of university and somewhere year two when, or three, when Stanford started putting out the classes, machine learning classes online, and then it turned into massive online kind of education courses. I actually joined, I think two 
there and one actually from Moscow in parallel. So I was in university working 20 hours a week and taking three online classes in parallel. <laughs> and so how was that? How was your dating life at that point, Ilya? <laughs> Well, let's just say I was a nerd. So, but so I think I would say definitely the transition has been happening that you can actually find the best classes online, right? The best teachers, the best classes are online and you don't need that from a university. Now having, and, and so then turning, for example, one of our classes was actually a class how to build large projects with a team. And so what we ended up doing as a group of us has built this a publishing, self-publishing platform, which is a relatively large project for a period of a few months. And I actually was managing that project. And so that experience you don't get from just taking a class or to even doing some of their homework. Because you actually need to work with your peers to figure out. And some people don't show up, like all, all the normal things that you have had to motivate meet on the weekends to do some of the stuff. And so I think that part of you still want to engage with and potentially remote is becoming more and more possible. So maybe this will change as well how this is. But working with other folks is what you learn in university, like communication, learning how to learn, stuff like this which doesn't always come through just from like online education. Now, again, this can be replicated in other types of like this boot camps and other types of educational facilities that can do that. And I think as again, online and potentially more VR stuff coming and working, start working, we'll see sounds of transition as well. Yeah, you see some of the best projects coming out of a collaboration at university. And I suspect that's because when you join an organization and typically let's say there's a hierarchy, it's not a bunch of young, inspired, technically competent people coming together and getting to be fully entrepreneurial. There's a waiting period, mostly some of the most innovative projects that I see user case coming out of right now. Are, you know, these guys are still in university, but they've got massive traction because they just gathered together with other like-minded, technically competent, creative people. Is there a way to do that? On the metaverse, absolutely. I think for the generation there is, but yeah, what was there at the point where you were, I were in university, less so. So that's interesting to see how that evolves. In terms of then the journey from university through to really Google, what's the story you'd like to share with us there that's relevant? Yeah, so pretty much I, I worked for that for the company I, I started working, and then they, as as school was kind of wrapping down, I I uh, they invited me to move to San Diego, and so I went there, um, and it was a good company. I learned a lot. They've been doing machine learning for like thirty something years before machine learning was a word. It was the kind of metrics before that. But at the same time, it kind of was not expanding. And I saw deep learning coming. This was like two thousand kind of thirteen. I saw deep learning coming, and I was like, "Well, I do want to go where deep learning will be big." And so I, I went interviewed a lot of Silicon Valley companies. And uh, obviously Google research specifically was, and probably still is one of the top facilities for this. And so that's what I joined. And really team that was working on knowledge, understanding, question answering, really this piece that I would say as, as close to intelligence as you can possibly be in AI, right? Like from my perspective, even when we have this working, right? The way we will know about it is by asking questions. And so 
the question answering is the interface you will, because this is the same way we interact ourselves and actually know each other's intelligence. You know, everybody can think through the moment of getting this unbelievably exciting opportunity, landing on the campus, which is incredibly famous and movies have been made about. But Search of Amana, this is a show about us finding, you know, really leaders and entrepreneurs uh, and typically entrepreneurs like you've got an edge. And typically part of that edge is that they have views of how things uh, can be created and bettered. Now, you are somebody who has always had open source projects. So there's a slight difference in terms of, let's say, a Web2 controlling mentality. But nonetheless, I'm really interested to ask, when you go to Google, are there still moments where you're thinking through things from a frustration perspective? You're not getting ultimately to run that organization. You might have ideas of how you think it could be run better. You mentioned in the earlier part of the show, you think when you were at Google, they were making some brilliant products and decisions and more recently, less good ones. So is that comment from things that you experienced there that started to frustrate you about the direction that they took? Yeah, for sure. I think, I mean, it, it was a combination of, it was definitely an exciting opportunity and there's a lot of smart people to learn from. And at the same time, some things were definitely not working well or not, did not make sense. And I think if you ask like 50 Googlers, there'll be three th- three top things that everybody will identify as not working. And so... What are, what uh, are that? Would you mean different or would they be No, there'll be a three top, the same thing that everybody will identify as not working. What, so, what are I mean, those? I'm, I'm not going to go into this. A lot of it is just the way Google internally works, right? Okay. But I think that the big piece for me that was realization of this culture, like the original products, in many ways, define the culture of the company. And there's a really good blogger called Stratechery who writes about this kind of, like, reviews a lot of tech scene, but then he has this really good articles around culture of companies and how that, and the product they built first, how that gets presented in all the other decisions they make. And so I think because Google was search first, and so search is very like, it's a low UX product, but data heavy, engineering heavy, it ended up being really hard for Google to actually build user-focused products that are beyond, because a lot of the decisions are made by engineers based on looking at the data. And so I think that that was an interesting realization, which is very similar from Apple. Apple, we don't look at data, but you know, how, how, like what's the edge form of the iPhone that people look right? They'll just like, screw it, we'll do a different one and everybody will love it. And so this kind of decisions, they then flow through the whole organization. That was a very interesting realization that did frustrate me in some sense because some things we wanted to launch were not really possible to do at Google. And so, yeah, I mean, a big part of it was, I would say, the incentive structure, as I mentioned, the realization around it, which is true about any big company. And so I've always was more of a fan of smaller teams working semi-independently. And I think the benefit was Google was kind of like that internally. It's a lot of smaller teams working independently and then they get four relationships and stuff like this. But they didn't have this other component, which is the economic part, how they actually keep getting coordinated. And so this is where at some point it came to realization that it makes sense to go and start a startup that will be like the smaller team focused on specific thing, moving fast, 
being able to deliver outsized impact to that. And so in 17 last, uh, joined with Alex, my co-founder, and we, through some twists and turns, end up starting near AI, which has focused on teaching machines to program. So we wanted to use some of these models I worked on and published, like attention is all you need, to teach machines to actually write programs. And so we can actually enable everyone to become a developer. And so I still believe this is the ultimate intelligent enhancement that we can bring uh, to people is make everyone to pretty much be able to build their own software. And because again, software is eating the world. <laughs> and so that's how we started the startup journey in 17. And we gave ourselves a year. So we started somewhere in June 17. We gave ourselves a year because it is a very ambitious project, let's just say. This is something that people have been wanting to do since 16. And people have tried many times. And by June 2018, we were pretty clear that we'll need many years of continuous research to be able to build something of the quality that's usable. And we had some cool prototypes. So you can build a mobile app, for example, by drawing on a piece of paper, how it should look like and writing some descriptions, but obviously it works in very limited cases. And so we started looking at blockchain actually, because on the side to collect more data, we built a crowdsourcing system, which was asking student developers and we tapped in into our community of competitive programmers to describe programs for us, describe how would they code something and then also write code for some description. Yep. And so we have a lot of these people working around the world and we have people in China, we have people in Russia and Ukraine and Cuba. All of those places have some kind of problem with sending money from US. And so we started looking at blockchain actually as a payment. We've heard that Bitcoin is supposed to be a global payments network. And so we started looking at that and then realizing that the, the principles of that three of open it's open that the idea came where we can actually build an open platform for data for crowdsourcing where we can have Google and Berkeley and everyone to contribute and then lots of people to do the data and then we have this like open data set great idea we're like okay cool how do we build it look at Ethereum and then realizing that Ethereum is not able to scale to even the load where we would pay thousands or tens of thousands of dollars in fees just to, per day just to operate it and that was it 2018. And so that's when we, we did the state, we did the usual thing, went through all of the blockchains, like read how they work, and then we ended up breaking a lot of them. Uh, <laughs> and then we did not find anything that would actually satisfy what we would think should be the blockchain, that the infrastructure that we would build on. And so we ended up saying, well, there's definitely an opportunity here because we would have built on something if that was it. And then that led to, well, then we should build it. We're systems engineers. My co-founder built charter database before, and we actually were able to pull in. So we were three people when we were doing AI. We went to nine people in one week when we kind of made the pivot in August 2018. And so, yeah, so that started the journey in August 2018. That was actually right. Market was going down for a while until now, and then it continued going down. And so, yeah, for us, we are very used to markets not being there and kind of working through that and building the products that actually matter to people, right? Because we ourselves want to use it. We ourselves want to build on it. So it's a really great story of scratching your own itch where you were focused on the initial project and then 
finding yourself in a situation where you've unraveled that there's a different opportunity that you're capable to pursue, which clearly has proved out. Do you still hold the ambition of the original project? For sure, yeah. So this is where, if we go to back to AI and bring this back, is the interesting part is, as I mentioned, right now AI is very much centrally controlled by a few parties. And the computational requirements, and in many ways, the people requirements to pull it together are really high. So most of the universities are not able to do AI, AI research anymore, which is kind of sad. And so the idea here would be to really actually use these principles of open source, of open governance, and build a kind of common infrastructure that people can build models on. And then we can train things we wanted to train and do a lot of this crowdsourcing that we were doing in this open way, collecting this data for the community, and then being able to leverage that and govern that through the whole society. Yeah. And if we look, and I know it's an amazing background you've got, so... I wanted to dig into quite a lot of it. So we've taken a lot of your time and you're very busy. So we might need to do another show because I think this next part <laughs> could be a whole, it's going to be a whole other show on predictions. I'll try and keep this to just a few questions. But on that last point, when I'm trying to think through where can this really go and then relate it back to something that I'm very interested in, which is skill sets that are important that evolve. So let's always say that there has been for periods of times a great benefit in understanding maths and the sciences, like particularly, let's say, physics, if you want to build things, if you want to engineer. If you had, I have a daughter who's coming up to four, so using her as an example, trying to think through what would be super beneficial for her to, like you did, Elia, at a, a relatively young age, seven or eight, become super passionate if she's passionate about it in programming and development, does that still stay true? Because if someone like you and the platforms that are created can create with AI ways that programming is almost modularly automated, then is actually the skill set that becomes more important in her future in, let's say, 15 years, the ability to think through product, the arts, and so on and so forth. Could you think through that for us, please? Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting question. Definitely the shape of the things is evolving. But I think that the fundamental piece of logic and solving problems is still there. And that's why in many ways, the competitive programming, but there's also various other kind of using logic and problem solving skill, like and honing your problem solving skills. I think that's is generically applicable with whatever future tooling will build for ourselves. Right. And so I think the we actually had this. So I went to this when I at an age of seven or eight, and it was called Eureka. It was a logical problem solving class for kids. And it was literally problems of you have 12 people sitting around the round table, and some of them always say truth and some of them always lie. And one of them says somebody on their left side is a liar and to solve how many liars are there or whatever. So problems like that are really interesting because they train you to work in sometimes more abstract environments, sometimes very specific things and really try to think through all the scenarios. I think that is useful. Definitely creative stuff is still there. Like it doesn't matter if you're designing a rocket engine or painting it or doing a painting, there's always a creative part there. Designing is playing or writing a you know, program. And so I think it, it, obviously different types of creative, but 
if you're doing a painting, there's a lot of science and mechanics that you need to know. And then there's a creator part that comes in together to actually make something new. And so I think evolving both of the sides is important. Yeah, it's very interesting to look at some of the greatest artists and they always do because <laughs> I'm a geek with backgrounds, actually look at their process. And typically, if you take someone like Francis Bacon, who's was a creator of very abstract art, the process is really systematic and you used the most innovative methods and techniques. You tend to find that fusion exists. There's so many examples, yeah. Michelangelo, so on and so forth. So let's now take it to near, because it'd be remiss for me not to do a couple more parts on this, seeing as we've got you on the show. Dow's uh, a really interesting point. And I know that you've been thinking through how DAOs could or are important to the near ecosystem. How are you seeing them being important? And what are some of the things you hope they get used to um, systemize? Yeah, I think so. I mean, this is kind of going broadly to our vision of how do we reimagine the world? How do we give everyone in the world control of their asset data and our governance? And so the governance part is extremely important cornerstone because right now, most of people have very limited way to interact with and be a stakeholder at different places and it's everything from participating in local communities that are making decisions around their local world the government they of the countries they live but also the facebook or any other platform they're interacting with they are making decisions based on what they think is right yeah their decision making is very much biased towards revenue and the returns they should be making and so on the other side, we do have communities constantly interacting. There's Google groups and originally there's millions of Telegram groups now. And so many of which end up realizing they need some form of kind of decision-making and financial system. And so I think the world is in many ways changing toward this kind of almostly chaotically formed communities that become more and more over time. They enact more and more decisions in power in the real world. And so through that, I think the DAO is a tool for social organization, for social decision-making, for being able to invest money and deal with other, other entities. And so DAO, for me, have become this way of clustering this, like uh, the one way I described it is like, it's a Facebook group with a bank account, right? That's what DAO is. But then around that bank account, now you need to make decisions. What do you invest money in? What contracts we take on? What work we do? or not do, all of those things then now come from that. And so through that, well, what do you think is your local community organization or your district level government? Well, it's actually a, a, your community with a bank account that they make decisions about investing into roads or whatever. And so I think this tooling has so much power because it also gives you flexibility to go from the government level to three friends organizing together to start something to even share the payments for the ski trip we're doing together. And in the middle, you have companies and investment DAOs and everything right in between. And so you can structure that in any way. And so it's just this flexibility and, and not needing to think about like, is that person a real person or another DAO? Like the members can be DAOs, can be people, can be programs, can be other applications. You don't have these limits and you can impose them if you want. Like, you can always ask like, you need to be KYC to join a DAO, right? 
but you don't need to have that when you're forming it allows just like immense flexibility on what we can build with them. And so a lot of the things, what I'm thinking is how can we leverage this for decision-making for near protocol and how can we organize and also evolve over time? And, and I think this evolution over time is extremely important, which is not true for many of the current government structures. Many of them have like, okay, we set it up this way. The only way it's going to change is revolution. That's literally the, <laughs> right? Like the constitution, the US is protecting the constitution word so much without trying to like understand why it was written. That's a part I don't really understand in US, for example, but all of those arguments are done based on the wording of the constitution, not based on why this was made. And so, but like what we see with DAOs, because it's way more digitally native, is you can fork it and you can redo the constitution of the DAO, or you can evolve it if people agree and stuff like this. And so you have this new flexibility and new patterns emerging now. And yeah, I've done a few talks about growing DAOs and how they evolve over time. Yeah, really interesting to think through. And again, it will be a lot of scientific experiment where we'll learn the weighting of decisions and how that can be decided. And because if there's a thousand people in a DAO and they're all aligned, it doesn't mean that everyone's going to have equal voting rights necessarily or should, but the fact that everybody can benefit in that community is obviously really appealing. So I think that within it, it's a little bit like hybrid distributed work. We're learning so much with the tools that we're using. And obviously a lot of skill was developed in how people were managing cultures within offices and in person. And so there's some real pros and there's some real cons, but as we move forward, clearly remote distributed work is going to be improved. And I think DAOs is similar to this as well. I'm really fascinated in how the culture in DAOs is going to be managed and how it can benefit everybody, but also how it can be weighted to the most motivated and the largest contributors of their time and their skill sets. So it's very interesting to think through. Ilya, just two more questions. So lastly, set out for us in seven years what you hope the near ecosystem will look like. Well, we're supposed to have over a billion users in five. <laughs> so over a billion users, a probably hundreds of thousands of applications, if not more. And yeah, pretty much my expectation will see applications that are using Web3 one way or another across all of your home screen, as well as a lot of the kind of normal, you know, enterprise business process parts as well. So, so exciting. And then lastly, I just wanted to give you the opportunity to talk about your involvement in the Ukraine war with um, Unchained Fund. What has been the experience that has shown you about crypto's advantages and challenges? And also, if you can just talk to it, because obviously it's something very passionate to you and, and something that is an incredible achievement that you've done as well. Yeah, so I guess for context, when the war started, the crypto community, the crypto entrepreneurs from Ukraine, came together, was like, hey, what, what can we do? Everybody was trying to help some friends of theirs, but there was also a lot of external people asking how they can help. And there was not much ways to donate crypto, for example, to existing facilities at that moment. And so it started with this idea of, well, how about we just collect all the crypto, have a multi-sig of most trusted entrepreneurs in Ukraine, and then deposit it into other non-government agencies, organizations, so like NGOs, all various things. And 
the benefit of crypto was, and this was like weekend, right? So this war weekend, no banks work. You cannot actually move money like on that days. And, and also you don't know if tomorrow that bank will be in one place, in one piece, right? <laughs> At the moment, you know, Kiev was actually bombed. We wouldn't know if even like central bank would be staying. And so crypto allowed us to put together that in 10 minutes. And we had first million 24 hours donated. And what we realized is also a lot of NGOs, external NGOs like UNICEF, Red Cross, et cetera, did not have people on the ground. And we had friends, we had family sometimes, we had friends of friends on the ground who were, wanted to help. And so we started funding them directly. And so we built a very much volunteering network with like multiple levels of verification to different tiers of fund allocation, stuff like this. In result, I would say other governments and other existing NGOs were just very slow to start. The crypto allowed to move extremely fast. We could receive money and then send them already to the person within hours and have a daily snapshot of where money went, what have helped were provided, where it is. And so I think that that is the future of disaster relief type of platform is going to be crypto because you never know if actually banking system will be working. And at the same time, you can engage volunteers, you can build reputation to have all this. And to be clear, the Ukraine is one of the top crypto adoption even before war. And so people were willing to take in crypto. There was ways to spend it on the ground. Sometimes they needed to convert it, but there were actually Ukrainian exchanges that were able to swap into local currency really fast. And so there's ways to move that around really quickly on the ground, which was very beneficial. And we had 5,000 volunteers actually that we funded the result and tons of people who have received help, food and everything. And so over time, we can transition from this volunteer network, which we wrapped because normal things started actually to work now. So UNICEF started to be able to ship stuff. A lot of the things we were doing almost like filling the gap while the yeah. normal system started to function. And then we transitioned to a UBI program. So right now, women with children under six, especially whose husband went to the yeah. uh, country or some who lost already their husband, sadly, they're receiving a 25 euro per week on their card directly. So it's actually a direct payment funding into the card and they can just spend it for what they need. And so that creates very also direct transparent process that allocate the fund. And so there's like 10,000 women right now who are in that program. There's, if you go to Instagram or Chain Fund, you can read their stories. Some of them are very kind of sad. All of them are sad, but they are able to maintain some living right now through that program. And yeah. So, yeah. So encourage everyone to continue to donate to run these types of programs across the country. Absolutely. We'll put in the show notes any links that you share with us. It's incredible, incredible work. Obviously, a silver lining, but it's very hard times, particularly for your country at the moment. But it reminds me of when you first started seeing social networks, being able to comment, and particularly Twitter, let's say, on what was happening in disaster areas, and then actually action be taken. And then now, as you say, being able to have um, a wallet and finance at the disposal as well, even if it's just filling the gap in terms of when the traditional type of cavalry come in. What a fantastic thing. So congratulations. Showing your mana as well, where you're able to work across multiple things there as well, Elia. Anything else that you wanted to talk about or get across to the audience or any questions you wanted to ask just to wrap up? I mean, I think just engage more into the ecosystem 
kind of encourage everyone because it's growing extremely quickly. There is lots of both need for folks to join, more entrepreneurs to build, developers to learn. We just recently launched JavaScript support. So for developers who were like before, hey, I need to learn a new programming language or Rust, too complicated now we have javascript support which 20 million developers know how to build on so it's opening up again barrier to entry lowering that extremely so you can start building trying things there's a lot of experiments still to build it's not too late as some say but i think it's actually still really early and there's a lot of opportunity to create a really valuable things would they look for projects in the ecosystem, could they come directly to near? Would you encourage them just to start working on things on the side? What's some practical advice there? Yeah, I think there's a combination of things. So there's careers page. If you want to join full-time, you can join community and ecosystem through Discord and start playing with things on the side. You can ask if you want to help out with some projects in their Discords. It's awesome near.com. There's all the projects you can find their Discord there. So there's many ways like, hey, I'm interested in this, find a project, join their community, maybe contribute to it on the side. Yeah, maybe you decide to join them or start your own thing. So exciting. Ilya, thank you so much for your time. I was at that conference stood next to you before you were on a panel and you showed me your, your calendar and it's like triple parked for every hour. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, yeah, like on a massive, massive mission at the moment. So I understand it. Thanks so much for your precious time. Absolute pleasure. And I hope your continued success carries on. Thank you. And uh, thanks for inviting me.